Today with uh, Dave Webster from the University of Gloucestershire. Is that right? That is correct for once, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, so I'm going to talk to David about a couple of uh, different themes in his work. And firstly, maybe I just get a bit of you give me a bit of background, Dave, um, just maybe on what you do and uh, sort of what's your intellectual background and what's what's your current role. Sure, I can give you a kind of little potted summary. Um, my original academic background was in Buddhist philosophy, so my PhD is in Buddhist philosophy. Um, but I've kind of drifted in various directions since. I'm currently um, head of learning and teaching innovation at the University of Gloucestershire, but I also still teach on the Religion, Philosophy and Ethics program, which is an undergraduate program we have here that I was responsible for setting up about 10 years ago. Um, and in between, I've taught lots of other things. I occasionally write about spirituality and contemporary society, and often at the moment writing about educational issues in relation to student attributes and resilience and grit discourse. Oh, that's quite varied. Um, what, uh, let, let's start with uh, talking about um, sort of, your, well, I mean, I guess what attracted you to Buddhism, I guess, first and foremost, and specifically what attracted you to, um, I guess, the Buddhist Palai Canon? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like many people's stories in these accounts, where they end up doing their doctoral kind of research, what really um, was influential on me was having a teacher, having a lecturer when I was a student, when I was an undergraduate student. And I was, um, as anyone who knows me well will tell you, a pretty crappy undergraduate <laughs> student um, and not very good at turning up or doing work or really paying a lot of attention. Um, but actually, I had um, Dr. Peter Harvey, Professor Harvey, who's now retired. Um, in Buddhist studies of Sunland, was convinced that um, I could do his modules and could do quite well on them. Um, and so I ended up doing quite a lot of work on that and doing my dissertation as an undergraduate on that and getting quite interested in it through um, looking at his work. So that was a big influence on me. But then I started doing masters in Hinduism, sociology of religion, really British Hinduism. And that involved also talking to people. Um, interviewing people. I wasn't hugely confident, I think, back then, but I found books, especially books by people who were dead, to be a lot more friendly and less scary. Okay. So um, I think one of the things you focused on that, uh, I think you told me this before, is uh, you looked at sort of the question of desire. Um, and uh, I'm wondering, maybe you could uh, sort of elaborate on that, or how the question of desire in the Palacanon maybe is different to what we might uh, understand by the notion of desire in, say, uh, I guess the more conventional Western tradition where you talk about people like Freud and Lacan and so on. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I have to talk about Freud. You can talk about Lacan if you want. But um, <laughs> um, I must say clear. But certainly, in terms of what I was trying to do in Buddhism, is that there was this kind of stereotype of Buddhist thought that it seeks to end all desire. So desire is a bad thing. And then you should get rid of it. And then there's a paradox of desiring to end desire and all these kind of problems. Um, but what I tried to do um, in the PhD and in the subsequent kind of book version was um, develop a kind of typology 
of desire and say so actually there's a whole bunch of key terms for desire in Buddhism and they're qualitatively distinct they have different sure, uh, sure. and so there's all that and then trying to work out a key notion in the Buddhist part of literature particularly Abhidharma texts was not a matter of just what you want but how you want it so there's, there's an interest in different sorts of desire with reference to their ethical qualities but in terms of what it was you wanted good things, bad things, kind of selfish things, um, and the way you want them. So it's even possible to want benign objects in a malign way, which is damaging to you and possibly to others. So that kind of got drew me in to this kind of rather complex typology around ways of wanting. I think it's sometimes we struggle for a good vocabulary around that in philosophy. Sure. Um, and um, in terms of like and then, how would you think it would uh, differentiate from how we normally understand uh, the notion of desire? Because I suppose at a very basic level, you know, in terms of the Western tradition, we sort of see desire as a type of lack or a you know a type of want. You know, like in Plato, you know, it's that you desire you desire fulfilment. But is it uh, you would suggest in what you've studied is a little more complicated or subtle? Yeah, and I think I think that idea of um, the idea of absence as lack is really interesting and I wrote a lot about that and the kind of stuff on Western philosophy that I wrote in relation to that um, that kind of work because there's a line I think it's Deleuze now I'm just going to use my memory who says something like desire who who would call it lack except kind of priests and sort of castrated crooners <laughs> some kind of line of this sort but you know, so there is a kind of counter tradition in the West as well which you see people like Nietzsche in you might see people within parts of the continental tradition objecting to that already anyway but certainly then but it's in this idea of seeing it as a lack which is kind of problematic it's often linked to quite a quite present psychological state which are very powerful so it's not the idea of it's merely an absence of things seems also not psychologically plausible when we experience it with so much presence. Our want for things, for example, our desire for things can be for so psychologically present that to think of it as a mere absence, it just be, I think, possibly kind of dishonest as well, our kind of phenomenological experience. Okay, so you mentioned the word present there, I guess, and I mean, I think we see this word coming up again and again and again and again in 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 a whole variety of areas such as um like uh, mindfulness and such uh, we see it in the corporate world we see it in education um is this is this is this somewhere then that you see sort of buddhism having a direct well relevance uh, in, in some regard or uh d- direct importance for uh, sort of current affairs or contemporary contemporary life you certainly hear it a lot, don't you? Certainly mm. there's this kind of mantra, if that's the right word, <laughs> context, um, whereby people say you should live in the present, um, that you need to dwell in the present, that idiots like us with our smartphones in our hands are not living in the present, we're not being in the moment. Um, most of it is rhetoric and meaningless kind of nonsense at the best I think, at times, I think. So I'm really kind of, I'm not sure how well it represents Buddhism accurately. It seems to it seems to represent a kind of post-Victorian Orientalist view of Buddhism in the West quite well. Um, it, it does that. Um, now, of course, there is in more substantial Buddhist meditative traditions the idea of presence, and but that's much more nuanced. It's much more linked to the notion of concentration and concentrative 
abilities. Um, and I, I think, like many people in, uh, who've got some background in studying Buddhism, are exceptionally sceptical um, about the kind of mindfulness fad in general. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I would want to link mindfulness to a whole form of what you might refer to as to neoliberal technologies of the self in terms of how we are sort of seen to use it to, to fix ourselves in ways that we then become better at tolerating what should be intolerable. Okay, so let, let's just try and unpick that a little bit. Mm-hmm. Neoliberal technologies of the self. So are you saying that what, it, what we call neoliberalism, um, which a lot of other people on the podcast have talked about as well, um, that neoliberalism is actually colonizing religion now? I mean, I think because the nature of it, the, it's almost a meaningless term, which I'd hesitated to use and just used it, um, is because it's sort of so pervasive and its tentacles kind of do that thing of cultural late capitalist appropriation of things so effectively. So that all religions find to some extent versions of themselves that um, represent what you might describe as kind of neoliberal um, or kind of what in our current economy might be seen as kind of centrist values. Um, so you certainly find within the way the Buddhism is presented um, the idea of it being used as a corporate strategy for higher levels of efficiency and at a very individual level. So it addresses the individual as a unit of currency who can therefore be improved to perform better in this very particular kind of economic model. Um, and if you want to see the kind of true, what I describe as a true horror of that, go and look at LinkedIn. <laughs> what go is the point of that? <laughs> I spend a lot of time on LinkedIn for a variety of, kind of most masochistic reasons. Um, but if you look at kind of mindfulness, growth mindset, resilience coaches um, on um LinkedIn, they will normally tell you that if they can come in and work with your employees and get more out of them by making them less stressed or getting them to make stress their friend, as it were, um, using mindfulness techniques. So it's very much sold in a corporate world um, under this thing that I guess we could generally refer to as kind of a neoliberal model of um, economic production. Which I guess is runs somewhat anathema to conventional religions because um, well, if if you have something called a neoliberal religion, I presume it's putting the emphasis on the self, um, whereas I guess in like sort of uh, the common denominator among lots of religions is that um, is the the desire to transcend the self, you know, to step outside the self. Whereas, absolutely, yeah, and you, you picked on something that's important there, Patrick, is that when I wrote in 2012, I think it came out now, um, they short. Um, the spirited book um, it's quite short one of my colleagues calls it a pamphlet but it's quite a short book but in that um, the main target of that as it were was new, new age religions or contemporary spiritualities of the people who argue they're not religious but spiritual uh, and that's to say that actually what's problematic about that often is the very pick and mix nature of it the kind of buffet nature of it that allows people to take what they fancy from it what serves their ego or their narcissistic self-regard whatever, but it doesn't require them to take the whole package along with things like loving their neighbour and doing things they don't want to do 
Um, and therefore, those things that force you into a kind of collective identity and communal activity, that might well be a step towards this transcendence of the self. Okay, yeah. So I was uh, that allows a nice little segue uh, to talk further about your 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 2012 book, uh, Dispirited, which is a very sort of um, uh, it's a very nice punchy critique, I guess, of uh, of. of uh, of a contemporary uh, spirituality, or what you see as the um, the moribund nature of contemporary spiritualism, would that be fair to say? Yeah, I think that sounds along the right lines. Yeah, I like moribund. That's a good word. <laughs> Thank you. And so, I think if I recall, the tagline said that uh, you 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 said you should punch people in the face. I think that's a, that's a quite a that's a quite a big debate at the moment, isn't it, in terms of Nazis? That's yeah, no, I was on my time. <laughs> I think that got me in, you know, um, somebody very close to me advised me not to use um, that opening line. Um, and then one of my colleagues who, you know, persuaded me to ignore that advice and to go with it. Um, yeah, they got, it got, I guess it got a bit more attention, though. It got people distracted from what I had to say, which is fine. But that was part of the kind of intense annoyance, intense annoyance on my part with um, the way in which... Uh, Contemporary spirituality, and particularly this phrase, I'm not, I'm, I'm spiritual but not religious, didn't seem to make any sense to me. And I ended up putting in that three part subheading about him makes us kind of, um, stupid, selfish, and unhappy. Right, yeah. I mean, and that's, that's often a refrain I hear. I hear it quite a lot among my students. And it does connect to something, uh, I think about sort of the contemporary nature of religion that I am spiritual but not religious, which I guess means that I I want to not have any of the sort of difficult baggage that comes with a conventional institutional religion, but I want to uh, embrace some kind of mysticism or some kind of alternate spiritual practices. Yeah, the very, I guess, the way that I suggested you might read it if you were very cynical, when I was writing the book, was that it's not really a propositional statement, but a form of sociological signaling where someone says, I'm not a bad person, he's one of those religious people who's going to tell you how to live your life. You know, I'm not someone who's actually got beliefs that they really hold and they're going to stick to, but I'm not shallow. <laughs> okay, okay. Um, you know, I've got depth, I'm not a mere um, shallow person who's only concerned with kind of selfies and shopping. I've got kind of depth, um, but I'm not one of those dangerous people who's got really strong beliefs about stuff they're not going to give up. That was my more cynical reading of, of the phrase. Um, and obviously there are people who are more genuine when they use it, but I kind of, I was interested in how it operated as a kind of signaling behavior in conversation. Yeah. And, uh, I think one of the things that you talked about in that book as well is, um, I think the sort of consumerist nature of alternate religions as we, as we call them. So mm. I'm wondering if you could sort of maybe talk about that a little. Yeah, and the consumers, both in terms of them being, um, you know, things that people go and buy, but also the idea of a spiritual supermarket, the idea that people could go and select sections of them to fit with the lifestyles. So they weren't like all of the religions say they are, to more or less extent, a kind of way of life that's all consuming, but the extent to which they were, they were almost like kind of hobbies, and they were a supplement to your lifestyle, that you would select the ones that went with that. So that was the kind of part of that critique. Um, in some respect, and it was in that sense that religions of that nature or spiritualities that people said were religions made insufficient demands on the person. 
they let you kind of they let you off too lightly, as it were, as if it didn't matter seriously, and if everything as if um, everything wasn't at stake. And my kind of my reading of religion, although I'm not a hugely religious person at all, but my reading of religion is much more kind of Kierkegaardian in that if it matters, it matters enough to keep you awake at night crying all night. You know, it really, really matters, or it doesn't matter. But you can't kind of have it without it being serious business. Right, so it's yeah. I mean, it's it's a matter of life and death. It's not something superficial or trivial. Yeah, it's not something you buy and you you segment, you take little bits about it. I'll have a little bit of Buddhism and I'll have a bit of kind of you know, or quite like Sufism. I'll have like kind of, you think. Well, it actually really matters to everybody who's ever lived, um, or it doesn't. And and this kind of messing about and taking bits from it and not take it seemed kind of to both insult atheism and theism. Okay, so I mean. In, ter- in sort of in in uh, in 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 the text, you you kind of try to provide a, a brief view of an alternative to all this, I guess, superficiality, and that's uh, what you call a kind of, I guess, a more troubling a troubling a- for atheism. And I'm wondering what you might mean mean by that. Yeah, um, well, I, I know you've written a lot about reclaiming atheism. I'm one, of the, I'm one of the people who needs to be reclaimed from or for. Um, so makes me think. Uh, but and what I was trying to get at is that, given that um, I was taking an atheist position, I wanted to think more about what that meant. You encounter a lot of atheist writing and talking online and things who say atheism doesn't really engender any beliefs. It is merely the non-existence in God, and then there's nothing else you can say. It has no political significance. It has no philosophical significance and I find that kind of unpersuasive and um, leaving us rather than limbo I quite like the kind of Sartre position where he kind of says in some, I think it might be extensions of humanism uh, but he says somewhere kind of rather glibly but I think correctly that for him atheism isn't the finishing point of a set of boring arguments about does God exist it's a starting point right yeah that's where you, if you start by saying the universe contains no God and God therefore there's no human nature um, that's a starting point for thinking what that would mean for us um, as a species, and that we might take that, we might construct a meaning out of that that is politically quite radical, that means some kind of radical equality and our non-essentialism and things. Um, but I think atheism can't be the end of thought, and we would just shrug our shoulders, shrug our shoulders like kind of cheerful nihilists in Nietzsche's account of Western Buddhism, uh, and say, oh well, nothing means nothing means anything. Never mind. We're going to die soon. Um, I think it still leaves us this philosophical task of constructing meaning for ourselves in this kind of blasted, barren, metaphysical world. Yeah, and so I mean, you've 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 asked me this question when you interviewed me once, but I've got to sort of ask you now. Okay. Would uh, I mean what is I mean how does this differentiate from more conventional forms of atheism? Like I mean, the Sam Harris of the world, the Richard Dawkins, the Daniel Dinnitz. Um, I think it has less Islamophobia in it, probably. And there is a big kind of split within atheist communities, atheist communities online. A schism. Absolutely. Good old fashioned schism. Where there's a certain amount of um, kind of disregard and real kind of toxicity towards all religions and kind of anger, which I think often lacks any kind of nuance and appreciation for the, the benefits that religious religions have brought people philosophically, socially, uh, but also recognising the, the problematic elements of those. Uh, so I think it's, an, it's a kind of atheism that recognises that religions are not 
just mad people worshipping sky fairies, not full of this kind of weirdly aggressive language. Because there have been, you know, people who are cleverer than me um, and wiser and more well-informed who have taken religious points of view. So I think, why would they do that? So I'm, I'm thinking that actually religion provides answers to perfectly good questions and not the answers that I want to provide, not the answers I think are the right answers, but it's in the business of dealing with the existential business of what it is to be alive and how do we deal with existential realities, mortality, finitude, and within religious traditions, there are very profound meditations and reflections on that. And we're idiots to throw out the kind of readings we find in the reflections in Ecclesiastes that we find in some very kind of powerful Buddhist literature uh, and in the kind of parts of the uh, Muslim world, as if these people are all idiots who never had a good idea in their lives. It seems to me just kind of weirdly kind of angry and pointless and, and to be honest, stupid. Okay, so the uh, the... I guess contemporary atheism is possibly as moribund as some of the alternate spiritualities that you've dealt with. Um, it, yeah, I think. Yeah. Um, so, um, yeah, I, I wonder, I mean, I've just, I'm not sure if you've come across it, uh, but uh, Tanahisi Coates, who's a, a journalist with The Atlantic, mm. uh, he's sort of wrote some very, very famous articles recently on sort of Obama's White House and Obama. Uh, he talks about something what he calls uh, sort of black atheism, which I thought was a very interesting uh, distinction on it. But he is he's almost radically pessimistic. He says, um, no, the, the, the moral arc of the universe does not bend towards justice. You know, there's not even a there's not even a, an arc there to begin with, you know, and yeah. uh, he believes in uh, he believes in chaos, really, which is kind of one of the reasons why he I think uh, it's some of the reasons he gives for explaining sort of race relations in the United States. But is that is that something you're afraid of? That 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 if you're an atheist, all there is is you know chaos. Uh, not hugely, because I think whether I'm an atheist or not, I'll still be dead fairly soon. We'll have to face this awful world that we're kind of creating <laughs> um, for our kind of uh, generations to come. Um, other than fears the parent of things, but you know the idea of a moral arc is very kind of sounds also kind of to us now a Victorian idea that everything is somehow purposive, there's some kind of teleological nature to history. Um, and I think actually you know there is the idea that things are chaotic. On one hand, is is terrifying. And there isn't a dialectical kind of materialist arc in history that eventually delivers whatever it ought to deliver us. On one hand, is potentially terrifying. and On the other hand, I think it's potentially liberating. He says, well, actually, because what the future is going to be like is open to all sorts of forces, it means it's not inevitable. Um, yeah. And so it's a non-fatalistic. And yeah, yeah, you have to have a certain act of the kind of imagination and all those things that are probably quite bad for us in the middle age, like hope and things. Um, but the idea is that, well, actually... There's no reason that there aren't seeds of things you see in younger generations and I see my students that make me think perhaps, yes, it is chaotic, yes, it isn't a given, it isn't fatalistically determined what the future will be like, but maybe some of these people are going to make things pretty great. I, I, I reject all this talk about kind of millennials and how awful students are, how snowflakes. I, like you said, I deal with undergraduates every day and they are, to a large extent, amazing. They can really in, 
interrogating notions of gender that I didn't even consider thinking about when I was their age. They're looking at alternative ways of thinking about social justice. They really like, you know, so some of them put it in 18 year old ways, but there are lots of them who are engaged in political projects and there might not be the political projects that we thought would happen when we were at the university in the 1980s or whatever, but they're engaged in all sorts of things that make me think the world is full of trumps and awful and, you know, goes and things, but actually, it's also full of amazing young people who will have, to some extent, will get to have a say in what the future's like. That's not so miserable. And I think, uh, yeah, and I think uh, I think that's been borne out empirically in the last general election, where we've seen a, a huge increase in the number of uh, youth participation in a general election, which was terrific. Um, I guess also one, one thing I'd probably like to add to that question about the moral arc of the universe is that it's... Uh, you know, the idea of its bending is it, it's, a, it's a very, very sort of incrementalist idea, isn't it? You know, yeah, yeah you know, the idea that, it's, you know, sort of, I suppose, inherently conservative, you know, the idea that, you know, any change you should make should be minimal. But uh, I guess the idea when you're talking about sort of, you know, that, that liberating effect of atheistic chaos, if I could put it like that. Oh, yeah, yeah. Like that. <laughs> it's something a bit more. Well. It leaves open the possibility of some more radical change or some more, or, uh, or, um, you know, the impossible becoming possible, I hope. Yeah, absolutely. And that's the kind of interesting thing is that because we're at the tail end of a historical process of kind of European capitalism, I guess, maybe the tail end, but, we, you know, there's been quite a bit of it. And especially in this country, it's been relatively stable for, in many respects. The life walking down a high street in Britain probably doesn't look much different to apart from the car models and things they were on their phones, to the 1970s. And, um, of course, we see in history, when we look back, huge amounts of rapid radical change, all sorts of times, all sorts of places. Um, so the idea that things only change incrementally is often people in, in my generation, and slightly older, just generalising from their own experience without really thinking that things have changed suddenly. You know, the idea that things can't suddenly change isn't borne out by the fact the world has changed radically lots of times before. Sure, yeah. I mean, I think uh, the documentarian Adam Curtis said this. It was a, it was a point that really struck me. He said that uh, some of the big uh, changes that we have experienced in terms of social justice from the 60s in terms of progress and equality came via the baby boomers and what's really interesting now is that the baby boomers are facing their own mortality and they're ultimately dying. And of course, when they're dying, you have a sort of a natural instinct to re-entrench and conserve your uh, your economic uh, position and standing. Absolutely. And I think we've seen a bit of that in terms of the kind of critique from so many old male white journalists writing about young people and why are they so obsessed with this and why won't they do it the way that we should do it and, <laughs> and why won't they get the revolution we wanted rather than worrying about you know transgender rights and things um well actually they're doing it the way that they're doing it how why would they do it the way that people who are their parents generation older would um engage with acts of social justice as you put them um, but yeah, there is a kind of, of kind of entrenchment there and a kind of economic conservatism that often sits ill with the fact that so many of them still dress like they're going to kind of, um, music, indie music gigs and yet are being exceptionally conservative in terms of they, what, what they do when they get in the polling booth. Yeah. Okay. So I've one, one more question to ask you on that line of thought and, hmm. um, on sort of on your dispirited book and your, 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 your thoughts on atheism and Buddhism is, can Buddhism be atheist? 
Well, I mean, you'll find a lot of kind of popular points of view around Buddhism that says oh, Buddhism atheism is normal. I mean, historically, Buddhism is kind of non-theist at best, but actually an awful lot of Buddhists have believed in a variety of supernatural beings and, in, and if you forgive the phrase, actually existing Buddhism uh, and many cultural settings. It's hugely imbued with superstition, with um, supernaturalism and belief. The idea of a secular Buddhism is very popular at the moment. Um, I have very good friends and kind of scholars that I know who would describe themselves as secular Buddhists, probably coming from the work in the last century from people like Stephen Batchelor, writing about existential Buddhism, writing alone with others and various important books. I'm I'm less interested in that now than I perhaps was ten or twenty years ago. I think it was really it meant a lot to me. Um I think Buddhism has taken a bit of a knock recently. Secular Buddhism has scope, but I think I worry about appropriation and co option by this kind of corporate world. Uh, and just at the same time, of course, we see the, the image of Buddhism being tarnished by the fact that it wasn't the Western fantasy that everybody in Europe may have believed it to be when we see actually what's happening in parts of Myanmar um, with um, Buddhists engaged in what it's hard to not think of as largely genocidal ethnic cleansing acts. Okay, so uh, the jury's out on that one, I guess. I'm <laughs> down with that bit, no. <laughs> okay, now, um, just uh, sort of for the final section of the podcast, I just wanted to talk to you about um, your current work on education, which is sort of, uh, I guess, a new, a new, a new trajectory in your career. And uh, and firstly, I'm wondering, in your interest in sort of education, philosophy of education. Is there any links with your your other work? Does does one lead from the other from your work on sort of spiritualism and Buddhism and atheism? Is there any link into the into your work on uh, education? Uh, yeah, I kind of think so. I didn't realise it at first because I'm an idiot and I didn't kind of connect these things later on. Um, partly because people spoke to me about them. But the kind of thing I was saying a few minutes ago about mindfulness. And this idea of a technology of the self, this idea that people have to adapt themselves to make themselves more malleable by circumstance and then they'll get on. I kind of started noticing um, uh, a while ago that lots of universities, corporate entities, universities focusing towards staff and towards students were offering things called resilience training. Okay. Uh, and I kind of, well, that's kind of interesting. Then I talked about it with a colleague uh, and we ended up writing a short blog post about it. Uh, and then she and I have been working on it ever since. And started thinking that that narrative that is sold to people, they need to make themselves more resilient, um, is actually very similar. And it's very much part of the continuum that relates to how mindfulness gets used in a lot of Western settings. So we also saw it used in relation to, to the notion of grit, uh, growth mindset. Uh, and all these things, they seem to be part of the same package of activity with a lot of conceptual um, overlap. So, so then, um, so then, I guess the idea is that sort of this neoliberal uh, technologies itself that you mentioned earlier are now seeping into uh, education, and um, these terms such as resilience and mindfulness are are in some way diminishing what makes a good educational encounter. I think my worry for them is that they stand in the way of some fantastically effective pedagogical approaches, which are much more collaborative, which is more co cooperative, you know, collective ways of working with students. Um, and certainly there appears to be good evidence that various forms of active and cooperative learning really do lessen the gap between people who've normally had less positive educational outcomes. 
so people of colour, ethnic minorities, uh, women, have normally had poor outcomes traditionally, and the many forms of pedagogy that really benefit them are more collective and cooperative and certainly more active. Um, but the kind of resilience and grit discourse, I think what it also does is, I'm just going to two things. One I think it does is to, um, it eclipses that there are barriers to people's success that are systemic, that cannot be overcome just by being tough enough, by being kind of gritty enough, by having enough kind of making yourself harder. And I think it's a very kind of dangerous message to say to people, if only you can make yourself tough enough, you'll then succeed. Because then when they don't succeed, it's their fault. So it's a real kind of victim or person blaming thing when they don't succeed. Well, actually, their lack of success may be the fact that there are actually no jobs, um, that there is discrimination in the world, that there's various kinds of other people who are substantially more privileged to get the jobs instead. But if, if only they'd been a bit tougher and grittier and had more resilience, they'd bounce back. And actually, many of our students who are working, who are carers, who have responsibilities, who have mental health problems, they're incredibly tough. They know all there is to know about getting on with stuff despite their problems. I think it's a bit kind of unpleasant sometimes to have a bunch of kind of well-paid academic consultants come in and tell them that they're not tough enough. So, that's so academic snow consultants are suggesting that students are snowflakes, to use the uh, pejorative term of the of the right. Certainly to some extent, and that's the kind of discourse that I think people inadvertently find themselves kind of um, coming into line with when you hear colleagues talking about students these days. For example, the students these days aren't tough enough. They don't, they don't like it when I criticise them. And I've read journal articles recently complaining about student defensiveness in the face of feedback, how we need to promote academic buoyancy with students, how they bounce back up when you hit them. Uh, with, uh, so the idea, but my must is, if your feedback to a student's piece of work is so bad it makes them cry, if it makes them defensive, I do want them to be tougher. I want my feedback to be less useless and more constructive and more well-framed so that it communicates with them. I think this idea that, that the students just have to become tougher to cope with the harsh world that's out there, it really lets go of the idea that the students can change the world. It treats a harsh, uncaring, tough world as like the weather. We just teach them how to put a coat on. It doesn't teach them that actually it isn't like the weather. It isn't a naturalized phenomena, that it's socially constructed the world. And the point of education is not to teach them how to tolerate the world and cope in it. The point is to teach them how to change it. Um, and so I think it's kind of educationally pessimistic to only frame things in terms of what they can do to make themselves better suited to the world as it is, which is not how it will be anyway and how it will be will be up to them. That's interesting. Uh, yeah, so the point is to change, which is a very, uh, it's a very Marxist idea. Um, now, I'm just, I, I want to ask you, like, I mean, you're a teacher, you're a very successful teacher, you're an award-winning teacher. Um, I mean, when you look at a classroom, when you come out of a class, mm. uh, what, what, what does it look like to you when you ha have a feeling that that went well? What, yeah, absolutely. Because you know, you know, no matter how long you've been teaching, sometimes you think you've done, you've had a good session, and sometimes you come away thinking, if only I, I didn't can get from. But I think when it's, I can often judge it that it's gone well when I'm not, I've done less talking. Um, because I've got a tendency, like many people, to be if given any opportunity, I would just talk indefinitely. Um, so when I've done that, I think that's not I'm not teaching at my best. Um, when the students have an awful lot to say for themselves. And they've got really engaged. And when I think that the students are not going to go away and forget about the class, 
but they're going to go away and find out more. They're going to be going away and spending that evening, at least some of them, looking things up, Googling things, watching videos on YouTube, reading actual physical things called books. Um, when I sort of encounter my students um, in the library or sat in the refectory with one of the books we've been talking about, it kind of, I just felt fantastic. You know, because you think there, there really are, despite kind of stereotypes and all the drip fed stuff we said we've given about young people, there are these amazing young people who are genuinely come to, despite paying huge, excessive 9,000 plus pounds a year fees into their debt, are still choosing not to go and do business management, but to come and study religion and philosophy. And those numbers, for certainly for the course we're on, are growing significantly each year. And that makes me feel hugely better for the future, that people aren't put off studying what I think is so important in life um, by these factors. They're, they're kind of tougher than I'd have been in the kind of um, motivation to do something vocational. They kind of shrug and do something that they really care about. Well, yeah, nothing says taking a risk more than studying philosophy and uh, religious studies, like as we both know. I think in terms of, uh, <laughs> in terms of our, uh, uh, in terms of making a risk, yeah. Um, so okay, um, I don't. I think I think that should uh, probably about cover it, Dave. I do have one sort of general question to ask you. That's about your climbing. You're huh. a you're a you're a you're written on climbing. You're a big climber. Does it mix with philosophy? Um, I do a little bit of climbing these days. I'm, I'm, I normally get into a little time. It does a bit. I mean, it's part of my um, middle-aged mortality-related kind of exercise thing. I think when people hit a certain age, things happen to them. Some various things happen to, to men of a certain age. I think one of them is getting obsessed with things like distance, and endurance exercise. So I still a bit of climbing. Also, this is one of your sins: is too much cycling and too much ah. thinking about buying, you know, expensive, overpriced Italian leather cycling gloves, which I don't actually buy because I'm not as sad as I nearly could be. But um, I think that there is that. But I'm, I was interested when I was, when I've been ill and I was doing recovery in the kind of phenomenological nature of the control of the body, um, which I think is quite interesting because having had lost control of 50% of my body, the idea of how you pay attention to it was kind of interesting. Yes. Yeah, so it was a, yeah, so it was a very, um, you were sort of like a Socrates with yourself. Something like that, laying there, poor, kind of feeling sorry for myself, really pointing things, you know, it's kind of um, thinking about how the um, the kind of body feels in that sense. It's kind of interesting, you know, it's it's a hard when you spend your entire life engaged in academic study with something kind of radical and sudden happens to you that affects your, say, your body, not to try and, you know, not to think about stuff all the bloody time, I guess. I guess, yeah. I mean, if you had sort of a confrontation with uh, something close to mortality, I guess it would always uh, elicit very philosophical <laughs> reflections on very sort of immediate uh, urgencies and tasks. Mm. To some extent, though, I did get an awful lot when I was in the hospital um, back in 2012, get an awful lot of sarcastic texts from my colleagues asking whether I'd, become, I'd had any kind of spiritual visions. The uh, swine. <laughs> there's just there's no there's no demon academics. Even when you're really in hospital, it's still finding where to get a dig at you. But that's that's only to, only to be expected, I think. Okay, so thank you for being with us today, Dave. That was absolutely uh, in, very enjoyable and uh, very uplifting for one of my favourite atheists and pessimists. <laughs> all about the joy. Come on, Jimmy. You've got a fight against with this Thank you for listening to The Well. Our theme tune is Love the Government by Papa Giraffe and is licensed under Creative Commons. You can follow us on iTunes or your preferred podcast app.